is a second, 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 we're off to a good start. This is the second time this weekend that, that I've preached this message. And just so that you're aware, in the first service, the earlier service, my kids were in it. And so I had to come up with some code words for this story that I'm going to start off with. So we spent like a good minute coming up with a key that my kids wouldn't understand so I could tell them the story. You get the uncensored version. Like you get everything. And so like this is, you should be honored just to be in this group. But it starts back in 2012 or 2013. I can't remember which. My wife Amy and I had this great idea that we would make this huge promise to our three kids that we would take them to the happiest place on earth that next year. So we told them, Jackie, when you're six years old, we're going to take you and your brothers to Disneyland. And it worked out great because we lived in Arizona and we figured it's just a short drive over. You know, we can just go there and soak in the goodness of these Disney princesses and the castles and the overpriced food. It's going to be great. So we said, kids, in 2014, we're going to go out there and we're going to have a great time. Well, what happened in 2014 was that we moved to an even better place, Minnesota. (laughs) That was not on our radar, but here we are. And so we start to look at things. We're actually a little bit further from California now. And unfortunately, we're not all that closer to Orlando. And so we're like right between a rock and a hard place. Like it's going to cost a lot more money. And so we start talking and we're like, well, we can't just go back on our promise. You know, once you make a promise to the kids, they're going to remember that forever. And so we're like, okay, well, how do we honor this? And so we're like, you know what? We have Valley Fair just down the road. Now, they don't have castles, and they don't have princesses, and they don't have Goofy, but they have Charlie Brown and Snoopy, so I think that's a pretty fair trade. And so we, we kind of pawned it off on the kids, and we're like, kids, you know what, here's the deal, you know, we moved, and so, by the way, this all happened just this last week, like from 2014 to 2016, we've been trying to figure this thing out, and finally this last week, we're like, kids, what do you think, you know, Valley Fair, this is awesome, and we said, well, what do you guys think, and they said, yes, and they were so excited about Valley Fair, I don't know what it is, but we sold it on them, and so <laughs> now we got out of our obligation to, to keep this promise, and we exchanged it for something much better, much, much better. We still have the overpriced food, but hey, that's a small price to pay. So I got to thinking this last week, well, what is the big deal about promises anyway? Like, why would Amy and I hold ourselves to something that we promised back in 2013 to a bunch of little kids that, that I know the younger two didn't remember? Why would we even hold ourselves to that? And I got to thinking, you know what? I was actually raised to see the importance of honesty. Maybe some of you were too. Like for me, when, when it, the house that I was raised in, there were a lot of things I could do to get in trouble. And my parents had quite the rap sheet on me, I'm sure. There were a lot of things I could do to get in trouble. Most of them were just infractions in legal terms. A few misdemeanors, but mostly infractions. The one felony is if you lie to mom or dad, right? If you're dishonest with mom or dad, that's like felony, that's capital offense. You're going to get it if you lie to mom and dad. In fact, we knew that if we lied, if we were dishonest, if we didn't keep our promise to them, um, it wasn't just a spanking, but in in my generation, it was the dreaded pants-down, skin-on-skin spanking. And, and, And we knew that was not something that we wanted. And right now you're thinking, well, that explains a lot. 
Now, Amy and I, we, we, it's, anyway, we don't do that anymore. <laughs> the police get called. <laughs> but I think all of us, as we were young, or maybe the hard way as adults, we learned the importance of honesty. And here's one quick observation. I'm not going to go anywhere with this. We're going to go a different direction in a second. Do you think most people are honest only because they get something out of it? If I'm an honest person, people will like me. If I'm an honest person, people will like me better. If I'm honest, I'm going to get something out of it. So I, maybe that's kind of an undertone where honesty is actually driven because we don't want to get spankings, or honesty is driven because we want to get ahead, and this is the easiest way to do it. That's something to think about and something for, for us to, to consider today as we look at promises and honesty in general. Now, as I thought about promises more, I kind of, the way my mind works, I need to like, okay, how do I visualize this so I can make sense of this? Why are promises such a big deal anyway? And in my simple mind, this is how I minimized it into one memorable tweet. I didn't tweet it yet. You can if you want. A promise is an invitation to let go of something. If I promise Amy, I'm going to take care of the bills this month, you just take a break. My, uh, my promise is simply, you can let go of the bills. You can let go of that obligation. I will pick it up for you. If someone you work with says, don't worry about your shift on Thursday. I know you're going to be gone or you have plans. I'll take your shift for you. That's basically a promise. They're saying, you can let go of that shift and trust me to take it. So in, in the very basic sense, this is how I think of it, to make a promise to someone is to offer them the invitation to let go of something. So the problem is, the world we live in and even the people that we are makes this very difficult to do. We know better than to believe every promise. In fact, Jesus himself, when he was talking to a crowd of people, he says, come on guys, you can't believe everything you hear. Um, Jesus called them false prophets. Uh, Today we could just simply uh, call them people who make false promises. These people go around and they try to get you to let go of things that you shouldn't let go of. So now what we have to do in today's world is we have to filter out the promises that we hear and we have to say, well, this one I can't trust, this one I can, this one's going to be a risk, and each one is this thing where we need to analyze what it means to let go and what we would let go of. And so every promise carries a risk. So as I thought about that, well, what does that mean about God then? And here's a really tough question. What does this mean about the promises God makes to you? Because here's where a lot of you are today or have been recently. You're in a place where you love the abstract promises of God that I'll be with you forever and I'll walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. All things will work out for your good. You know, these are very abstract promises and we say amen after all of them. Until you get into a season of life and you're thinking, that's great, but when is that going to happen for me? I love the abstract concept, but what exactly does it mean for my life today? Now, the wonderful thing about God is that no matter how much we doubt or wonder or question, how can this be true, what does this mean, no matter how much we do that, the wonderful thing is he invites us to investigate who he is, and he invites us to investigate his trustworthiness. We'll make that number two. And you're thinking, wow, we're already at fill number two, and there's only three fill-ins. 
It's going to be a 10-minute message. Here's the thing. The holy God, he welcomes sinful people to investigate his trustworthiness because here's the thing. If he truly is completely trustworthy, like everything he says is true, every promise he's faithful to, if that's true, our Father in heaven would know that we have trouble believing that because he knows we, are, we have been conditioned to look at the world with skepticism because we know what it's like to have a promise that's not kept. So here's something that you can talk about in your growth group. If you're meeting this week, you can talk about, well, what about this blind faith? You know, just believe about God. Or what does it mean to investigate God? And you can kind of apply that more. Um, but for now, I want to tease this out just a little bit more. God invites us to investigate his trustworthiness. And you know how I can say that with certainty and put it up on a on screen? PowerPoint. No. The reason I can put it up on a screen is because when the Bible was written, when God had the words of Scripture written, it's longer than six sentences. And I've said this before. If, if it's just a blind faith thing, God just wants you to blindly believe what he says, the Bible would only be six sentences long. It would say, God created everything great. Mankind messed it up. God promised to fix it. And Jesus fulfilled it. Believe in him and you will live. The appendix, love God and love your neighbor. That's it. That's all the Bible could say. And if, if God was interested in you blindly believing what he wanted you to believe, he would just give you six statements and say, believe it, and then send you off. But instead, when you open the Bible, when you study the scriptures, what do you find? You find a lot. In fact, you've looked at it and you've said, this is way too complicated. I don't know if I can understand this. But you know the beauty of that? This is God saying, I want you to investigate my trustworthiness. I don't just want this to be a blind faith thing, but I want you to see that you can trust me even when the promises are big. You see, when you make a promise to someone, it invites that person to let go of something, and God says, to let go, I'm going to show you who I am. And yeah, this is risky. Because here's the other thing. When God makes a promise to you, he's inviting you to let go of you. That's what all of his promises come down to. He invites you to let go of you. And of all the people in the world, we're going to tie this into our series now, of all the people in the world who had the greatest risk of letting go and holding on to God, one of the greatest people was Abraham. And we've seen this in weeks one through two, one through two, one and two. Uh, when God came to Abraham, he said, Abraham, leave your country, leave your land, leave your household, leave your father, and go to the land that I will show you. So Abraham, listening to the promise of God, simply let go of all those things, and he followed where God wanted him to go. But... When the abstract promises of God suddenly became hard for Abraham to make sense of, he started to be where many of us have been in this place where we start to question, well, wait a minute. When is this going to happen and what is this going to look like? So my hope is as we look at this, this next episode from Abraham's life, you're going to see some things you have in common with him, that he had these questions, he had these doubts. God, make the, the abstract promises more specific. When, how, where? And this is something that Abraham comes back to in, in a few more episodes too. We're going to pick it up in Genesis 15. And if you were here last week, you're like, wait, what about Genesis 14? 
And I'd say, that's a good question. So after all this, after Abraham left his land, came to this place called Canaan, and after he said, wait a minute, there's a famine here. I better watch out for me. He goes down to Egypt. They kick him out because he lied about his wife to save his life. Goes back to Canaan, and he realizes that his nephew Lot had been taken captive by this, this complicated thing. It's like four kings versus five kings. You can read all about it in Genesis 14. Long story short, Abraham realizes that his nephew has been taken captive, and so Abraham goes Chuck Norris. He gets 318 guys, and he goes and he, he, he kind of wipes them up. You know, he kills a bunch of people, and he rescues his nephew Lot and takes him back home. And after all this, Abraham kind of sits down, and he says, oh my goodness, All this stuff has happened, and I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. There's been a famine. I haven't trusted God. I lied about my wife, Sarah, to save my own life. I got kicked out of one place. Now I'm stuck here, and I could have died. I just saw several men, maybe dozens, maybe hundreds, put to death. And when anyone goes into a battle scene, it has a shock on them. So Abraham is sitting here, his picture all the things he's gone through. And now he starts to wonder, what about these promises of God? What makes them so worth holding on to? And so Abraham, or the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, and this is what God told him. Hey, don't be afraid. So Abraham flipped a switch, and he was no longer afraid. I wish it were that easy, right? God says, there's two reasons to not be afraid. Number one, I'm your shield. Number two, I'm your very great reward. You know what a shield does. Shield blocks you from an opposing force, and if you're in real combat, it does not end well for the shield. God says, look, I'm going to get between you and your enemies. You have no reason to worry. I am your shield. And he says, Abraham, I am your very great reward. Like, you're looking for things, I have them. I am the answer to what you're looking for. I am your reward. And now when Abraham hears this, he's shaken. He's thinking, but I almost just died, and I don't know what's going to happen. What do you mean, these abstract things? I'm your shield. I don't have a shield. I'm your reward. I don't see anything. What do you mean by that? And in this moment of doubting and questioning, he respectfully, yet kind of pushing the limits, questions what God means by this. Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, a a term of deep respect, a, a term of humility by Abraham. Sovereign Lord, what can you give me? You say that you're my great reward. What could you give me, though, since I remain childless? And the one that is gonna inherit my stuff is a guy named Eliezer of Damascus. You say you're my great reward and that you're my shield. Why don't you give me something? The only thing I'm looking for is this child that you promised. But as it stands, this guy named Eliezer is going to inherit it. Now, this is the only time his name comes up, Eliezer. And so you have to ask, well, who is he and what does he do? Or as Arnold would say, who is your daddy and what does he do? This is the way it continues. I don't, that was not in the script. <laughs> Abraham said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. And so he's saying, look, this Eliezer of Damascus, he's not even a relative, he's my servant who I'm hired, and now he's basically going to be my heir. 
Now, the, the name Eliezer, who knows what that name means? See, I think there's a reason why Abraham didn't just say this servant is going to inherit it, but he actually named him. And the reason is Eliezer means God is my help. Now, how's that for irony? God, you promised me a son, and the one who is going to inherit my estate is a guy who's not my son, but his name is God is my help. Ouch. Now, I want to pause right there because I think that a lot of times, many of us are in a similar place where we're staring at an Eliezer, and we have no idea when and if and what the promises of God possibly mean. And we're sitting there thinking, okay, God, I know that you say some great things. You're my shield. You're my reward. Things are going to go well. You'll work all things out for my good. But we're staring at this thing, and we're saying, but this isn't you. This isn't good. So when are you going to step in here? And, And there's this moment of doubt and questioning. And I want you to know, if you've gone through that season, like Abraham has, or if you're in that season right now, God doesn't look at you and say, well, you're just pathetic. God doesn't look at you and say, you just need to believe more and have faith more. Come on, muster it up. God does not have that reaction with people because when God extends a promise, an invitation to let go, he also invites you to investigate the reason why you should trust him. And so God is thinking, well, how can I make Abraham so confident and sure that it's going to work out, that he's going to get what I've promised to him? And so um, God continues here by coming to Abraham again. God doesn't even name Eliezer. It's not worth naming. He says, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. Or in modern day terms, we'd say that a, a person or a son of your own DNA Someone who comes from you will be your own heir. And, and I want to pause there because if I was Abraham in this moment, what I would be doing is I'd be looking at my hands and my feet and my body and I'd say, well, what kind of DNA could, possi- could this child possibly have? Because you see, at this time, Abraham is 85 years old. And I'm not going to make any more jokes about old people. I give that to you enough. But in this moment, Abraham is 85 years old, and he's saying, what do you mean a son will come from this? And we know that he was actually inside. He was in his tent at this moment. So maybe he even looked over at his wife, Sarah. And I'm not going to tell you her age because that's not nice. But he looks over at her, and he's like, well, she's no spring chicken neither. How can a a son come from this and come from that? And so as he does this, God is like, okay, this is not where I wanted you to be, Abraham. I'm giving you a promise here, but all you're doing is looking at yourself. And so God is thinking, well, what can I do to have him look at me? So God says, I got it, I got it, I got it. Abraham, come outside. I want you to look up at the stars, and I want you to count them, if indeed you can count them. Now, I'm just going to pick on husbands real quick. Uh, Husbands, if your wife told you to go outside and count the stars, would you do it? Neither would I. If God told you to count the stars, would you do it? Probably still not. I mean, that'd be kind of a weird request. But this shows me that God understands how male minds work. He said, Abraham, I want you to go out and count them. If you can... 
If it's possible for you, I don't think it is. If you can count them, go ahead and go out there and count them, but I don't, I don't think you can. So Abraham, this is how I envision it. Abraham's like, I can count those things. So he goes outside, he's like, starts counting, starts counting, starts counting. And, and as you look at just how this was recorded, it actually seems like there was a break between this and what happened next. So it seems like there's this pause while Abraham goes outside and he starts doing his best. You know, counting the stars, looking at, at least looking at the stars. And here's the thing. If in that moment, Abraham felt small, then God made his point. If in that moment, Abraham looked up and said, wow, there are so many stars, each one of which has been named by God, then God would have made his point. This was a chance for Abraham to look up and understand this wasn't about what he could do. This was about what God could do. So Abraham looked up, looked at the stars, if indeed you can count them, and then God finishes up like this. Then he said to him, again, it seems like there's a pause there. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Wow. Wow. And in that moment, a thought crossed Abraham's mind. The thought was, God, you promised. You promised something big. And if I look down at myself, it's not going to happen. I don't see how it can happen. But as I look up and see what you are able to do, what you promised is what you can do. Something amazing happened, and and before we, we get to that, Maybe uh, personalize this for you just a little bit. You see, we, we often do the same thing that Abraham did when he heard this promise from God that he would be a father, he'd have a son, that everything would be great. You know, Abraham is just stuck there looking down at himself saying, well, how can this be? And looking at his wife, well, how can this work? How can this be? You know, a lot of times that's where we get into trouble too. Uh, because when God says, hey, I'm going to work all things out for your good, you're looking down at yourself and you're like, I don't know how this can be good. Or that you're with me, God is with you always, and you look down at yourself and you're like, well, why do I feel so alone? See, the turning point for many of us is when we hear the promise of God, instead of looking down to ourselves to keep that promise, we need to look up at what God is able to do. And the result for Abraham was something amazing. You see, he looked up at the stars. He said, wow, this is amazing. Um, And God said, this is what your offspring will look like. Too many to count, but all of them named and loved by God. And Abraham's reaction was simply this. Wow. He believed. He believed that God could do it. He believed that God would do it. And this isn't to say his journey was ended. Uh, because as you look on through the, through the book of, or through the chapter of Genesis 15, you see some stuff that God does towards the end of the chapter to show Abraham and convince him that, yes, this is a promise I will keep. In fact, if you go home this week and read Genesis uh, 15, you're going to say, wow, it ends really weird. Like Abraham is cutting animals in half and making a walkway with basically a sidewalk of blood and weird things going on, and you're going to say, well, Pastor Matt, just skip that because it's too hard. Um, actually, we're running out of time, and I knew we would. 
Um, but we actually talked about that section uh, back a, a couple months ago in our starting point series. It's part eight at the table, and we talked about Genesis 15 towards the end. So if you're curious about that, you can uh, reference that message. Um, but the thing to take note of now is simply in this moment, Abraham has this thought cross his mind that it's not up to me to keep God's promise and it's not up to my ability, but it's up to him. And then there's this remarkable statement, the end of the section we're looking at, where it says, and he, that is God, credited it to him as righteousness. He, that is God, credited to Abraham, credited it, his faith to Abraham as righteousness. And basically just righteousness means that there has been an accrual of history where, where Abraham is now declared to be good with God. Like, we're friends. We're good. Everything is great. And you have to ask, well, what did Abraham do? He simply believed. When God made a promise, Abraham said, I'm going to let go of me and let you do what you need to do. Abraham believed the promise. Um, several years ago, a very kind family member decided to give Amy and me a monetary gift. The thing is, they didn't tell us they were going to give it to us. And they didn't send us cash, they didn't send us a check, but instead they decided to take our bank account information, which we had entrusted to them, and it was all good, they decided to take that bank information account, go to the local bank, and simply credit that money to our account. And so we're looking at our online statement, and we're like, wait a minute. <laughs> There's a lot of money here that we didn't put in there, and what's going on here? So we called customer support, and this is like the most awkward situation I've ever had. I'm like, she's like, hello, what can I help you with? And I said, there's money in my account that shouldn't be there. And she pauses for a moment, and maybe you're pausing, like, what? Just take the money. But we're like, we have no idea where this money came from, and so we're, we're worried that maybe, you know, there's some bad activity, someone's just testing our numbers, I don't know. Um, so we, it's a long conversation, 20, 30 minutes. Finally, she tells us, well, I can't give you many details, but what I can tell you is where the deposit came from. The, the, the deposit was, was located in a branch in this city, this town. And as soon as we heard the name of that town, we were like, oh, okay. It was, then we knew who did it and why. And, uh, okay, so then, then we kind of understood what was going on. Now, you see, some of us, we're, we're in a place, or we will be in a place, where we're looking at life. And, and we hear the words from the pastor, or we hear the words from the Bible that God loves you and God has justified you and you're considered righteous because of what he did. And you're going to think to yourself, oh, that's not for me. And you're going to look down at who you are and what you're, you've done and you're going to say, that can't be true. And you're hopefully going to do some investigating. Well, well, how could God say this of me? And what God wants you to do in those moments is to stop looking at yourself and to look up at a cross. He's going to tell you, and guys, if you need this challenge, try this. He's going to tell you, look at the cross, and I want you to measure the love that you see there. 
if indeed you can measure it. Our last fill-in for today. See, God's promises depend on God, not on you. When we hear these promises of God that he's going to be with us always and all things will work out for our good, our natural inclination is to doubt it and to be skeptical, to look at our Eliezer, to look at what we are and who we are. But God says, knock it off. I need you to go outside and look up, look to the cross, look at what I've done. And in that moment, God is showing you, leading you to a realization that you can let go of you because he has given you something better. Now, one quick application, then I'll send you guys out of here. Um, this realization kind of came to me in the last couple of years where I started looking at what the New Testament refers to as fruits of the Spirit. So Paul goes through this big, long list. Fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. And he's basically saying, if you're a follower of Jesus, these things will be present in your life. So what does Matt do? When God gives this promise to him, Matt, these are the fruits of the Spirit. What Matt does is Matt looks down. And he says, well, I better have love. I better be patient. I better uh, be humble. I better uh, be, be good, be kind. I better have self-control. And I said, all right, Matt, this is the way it's going to work. And I looked down, down, down until someone said, Matt, you need to look up. Because the promises of God don't depend on you, they depend on him. And that opened me up to this idea, what if I, instead of forcing these fruits to come out, what if I just simply said, I'm going to let go. Spirit, you know the fruit I need, what day I need it, in what amount, and I want you to fill it up as you see fit. You see, when you let go, that's when God steps in and he says, now I can work with this. I can work with this. And the first place he did that, was at the cross. Now, if you still have wonders and doubts, and if you think you're not Abraham material, he's up there, or if you still think, well, the righteousness of God and the forgiveness of God, that's for other people, I'd say, you're predictable. (laughs) This is where all of us naturally come back to day after day. So my encouragement is my encouragement from week one. Come back next week. Because you're going to see more about the story of Abraham and how God continued to grow him and develop him. But in the meantime, take this to heart. Who you are and who God sees you as is what he promised. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, my prayer is that for the people in here who are in a season of life at the moment where they can't see the goodness of you or they can't see the fulfillment of the promises, help us to look up before we look down. Help us to look to the cross where we see every promise fulfilled. It's there we see the righteousness of God given to us. It's in the empty tomb we find our hope and our peace. Let that be the place we look to rather than looking at ourselves. Help us to be the joy and peace for the people around us too as, as we go through burdens. Help us to love one another and to be the love that you intended us to be. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus as we join in the prayer he taught. Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.